1: i'm sarah ellis and i'm helen tupper and this is the squiggly careers podcast where every week we talk about a different topic to do with work and share some ideas for action and some tools to try out that we hope will help you and to be honest us to navigate our squiggly career with that bit more confidence clarity and control
2: and a quick reminder before we get started on today's topic, that you can always sign up for PodMail so that you never miss out on our latest episodes or resources. We send out a weekly email, it comes out first thing on a Tuesday. It has our pod sheet that you can download. It's good for reflection, taking action. It has the pod notes, which are a good swipeable summary, useful to share with teams and any other resources that we think might be helpful connected to the topic of the week. The link for that is in the description. And if you ever can't find it, you can just email us, Helen and Sarah at careers.com
1: and this week we're talking about high trust teams so back in 2020 which does feel like a lifetime ago now I had a brilliant conversation with Amy Edmondson and Amy Edmondson is a researcher and a professor who's really pioneered this idea of psychological safety and that's episode 151 so some of you might already know quite a lot about psychological safety maybe it's even something you talk about in your organizations or through the work that you do And so today we wanted to really talk about this idea of high trust, which is sort of connected to, but not exactly the same as psychological safety, and also reflect a little bit on how the last two years might have impacted the trust that we have across our teams and some really practical ideas for action about how we can continue to create trust, because it's one of those things that you have to continually commit to. It doesn't sort of just happen and then we've ticked the box, unfortunately. Like all the best things, we have to keep working on them.
2: And I think because so much changes at work, particularly in the last couple of years, that even when you might have felt you had a high trust team like pre-pandemic, actually, I think a lot of the changes in the way that we're working, the fact that you might be working with people that you've never actually met in person yet, um, all of that stuff creates some complexity. And it means we just have to keep investing and focusing on trust. So let's do the what trust is and why we need to focus on it. And then we're going to get into sort of what it looks like and how you can build trust in your teams. So when we're talking about trust in our organisations, we define it as a team where there is trust and respect and that people feel comfortable to be themselves. And I also found a trust equation that I quite liked because I quite like uh, the <laughs> sciencey bit. This is a science bit. So I don't know if it's that sciencey. But it's that credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self-orientation equals trust. Let's just unpack that a little bit. Um, So credibility, the extent to which that people feel that you have the ability to do your job. Uh, Reliability, the extent to which that people feel that you show up to do your job. And intimacy, how close people feel to you. That's the first bit, adding all those things up. And then it's divided by self-orientation. So the idea here is for a high-trust team, you don't want people to be too selfish. You want people to be, you know, slightly selfless. It's team first, really, that helps to create high-trust teams. And it's those things coming together that result in how much trust is there at the moment. Sarah, what is your perspective on credibility plus reliability plus intimacy divided by self-orientation equals trust?
1: I think for me, it's probably not something I would remember, being (laughs) honest. And I do find that some of those words don't connect that well with me in terms of, you know, sort of everyday, simple, straightforward language that we might use in the work that we do. So when you say intimacy, for example, I suppose I think maybe that means how connected we are or how the closeness or the quality of our relationship. So I find that a good sort of starting point to then sort of think, What's the so what or what does that mean for me in my world or probably in my words? And I think that's one of the things I'd really encourage people to do is think about maybe what's your trust equation in your team Mm -hmm. or in your organization? Because when I looked at this definition initially, I thought, oh, I'm not sort of sure. It doesn't sort of make sense to me immediately. But then when I started to explore each of the words sort of in my own way, like for me, reliability is do you do what you say you're going to do? Like as simple as that and that's how I would describe that and then I think well you know the, the answer to that is often either yes no or probably for most of us sometimes but it's interesting to know that that is one of the things that contributes to trust and so I find it a useful starting point but probably not sort of
2: an answer in itself. I like your response to that so <laughs> I agree but because I think it invites conversation which yes. I think with all this stuff on trust I think it's all about inviting conversation and not letting any one opinion, dominate stuff. So work out maybe what that looks like for you. And we'll put that definition as well in the pod sheet so you can have a look at it. But in terms of the why we should care, there are lots of stats and percentages that show that trust makes a massive difference. The the shortcut is that a high-trust team is a high-performing team. People are less stressed, like 74% less stressed, apparently. Millennials are 22 times more likely to work for companies with high-trust cultures. And they perform two times better than the general market. So high-trust teams result in high performing teams and ultimately high performing businesses as well.
1: And if you are interested in almost the business case behind high trust teams and psychological safety specifically, there are loads of really good free resources which Google have made available. So if you Google, Google, (laughs) which is a funny sentence to say, but I think the website is rework. And we'll put the link to that in the show notes as well. And that's just a really good summary of almost a big experiment that Google did looking at which of their high-performing teams and then they sort of rewound from that to try and figure out why. So what do those high-performing teams have in common? And it was really interesting that they found there was lots of things that they didn't have in common, lots of things that were different, but the one thing that was consistent across every team is that they've got this psychological safety. So when I'm doing workshops on high-trust teams, I always describe it as I see a high-trust team as an input to get to the output of high performance. And I think sometimes we skip the input and go straight to, oh, we want a high-performing team, because who doesn't want to be part of a high-performing team? And what organisation doesn't want high-performing teams? But I think if that's what you want in terms of your output, you've got to start with trust first. So I've spent quite a lot of time reading and researching about high-trust teams and psychological safety, and I find it really helpful to think about what a high-trust team is and what it isn't just to make sure that we are maybe challenging any assumptions we might have about what a high trust team looks like. And just being really clear on what we're aiming for, you know, what's kind of the job to do here. So I thought I'd just run through some of these just to see if it's helpful for you. So it is a team that has high care and high challenge. What it isn't is a team that's always comfortable, harmonious and where everybody is just nice all the time. I mean, that does sound good to me as, a, as an introvert who doesn't like conflict. But I also know from experience, those high trust teams, there's high care and there's high challenge. It links, I think, really nicely to Kim Scott work on Radical Candor, where, again, she talks about this environment of high care. You can care personally and challenge directly. I think you see that and you observe that in high trust teams. It is a team that makes mistakes and then they talk about them and learn from them. It isn't about hiding mistakes. I think one of the challenges sometimes is thinking, oh, in a high-trust team, you make less mistakes. Not necessarily. The big difference, actually, is that everyone makes mistakes because we're all human. In a high-trust team, those mistakes are talked about and the learning from those mistakes is shared. And that's what doesn't happen in a low-trust team. It is about belonging. So a team where everyone can feel like they belong, They can be themselves. You're not having to pretend to be anything you're not or having to put on a persona every day at work. And it isn't about sameness, a team where everyone sounds the same, looks the same, comes from kind of the same background. It's not about being, I heard this phrase the other week, which I really liked. It's not about being a career chameleon where everyone feels like they sort of have to have, you know, the same stripes or the same spots all the time. Mm -hmm. And it is about speaking up. So in a high-trust team, people speak up, they share risks, issues, challenges, and they ask for help. These are all the sorts of behaviours that you will see all of the time. It might feel awkward or it might feel difficult. You might be three quarters of the way through a project and you realise something isn't right or there's going to be a problem in about a week's time. In a high-trust team, those conversations, as hard as they are, are had. You know, they're openly discussed. In a high-trust team, people at every level ask for help. You always notice in high trust teams that leaders ask for help. You see these behaviours in everyone in the team, not just in certain pockets of the team. And it isn't about sort of silence or hiding the truth or being scared of sharing bad news or asking questions. So in a low trust team, no news is bad news. It's it's sort of that thing of going, if you're not hearing these things, it's not because they're not happening. People will see issues or risks or need help. It's just, you just, you don't know about it. That's the real challenge. So I find that a really useful exercise and there might be even more there that we've not thought about. So let us know if you've got any other ideas, but I just think having a shared understanding across your team, if this is something you want to work on, on what it is and what it isn't, is really useful because then you can start to get really practical
2: makes me think a little bit about how our team well our team's evolved in lots of ways over the last couple of years but because we've grown an awful lot but I think some of those things like learning from mistakes when you might have been together more often you might have talked about it in I don't know team meetings there would have been a slightly more casual environment to talk about them mm. but because the way that meetings are at the moment and so much is done remotely and everyone's back-to-back meetings that you have to really make time and make a place for things like sharing mistakes so Sarah recently initiated like mistake moments on our team's channel for our team so that everybody has a sort of space in the week to share if you've made a mistake and the idea is you don't wait for a meeting you do it then and there and I think there are certain things like the speaking up give some ideas for how you can do that shortly or the learning from mistakes that I think you have to think what does this look like in a team where we are majority working remotely or working hybrid we can't rely on this happening just when we come together in person we have to put some new things in place that we can have those different factors that sarah talked about but in a virtual environment too and there's a really good article that we'll link to as well, specifically on that point around kind of trust, psychological safety and virtual teams that Dr. Thomas tremoro Promusic, a previous podcast guest, and Amy Edmondson, a previous podcast guest, <laughs> have written for Harvard Business Review. And it really just gives you that specific focus. So we'll, we'll share that with you.
1: So having said all of that, I also think it's really interesting to think about, well, what gets in the way? Because these high trust teams sound like great places to be you're getting high performance, all of these behaviours, you know, you're learning together, everyone's being themselves. So why is every team not a high trust team? And in a singular word, the answer to that is fear. And fear is one of those things where it's a very, very big barrier for us all personally, because it activates a part of the brain called the amygdala, the section that's responsible for detecting threats. And that fear gets in the way of learning and it sort of stops us from doing all of those things that I described. It stops us speaking up, asking for help, making a mistake because the consequences of doing that feel too scary. Essentially, we're too nervous about, well, what might be the response to doing those things? So perhaps, for example, and I think some of this can feel quite rational and very understandable. So perhaps you, you know, previously have spoken up or asked for help and you didn't get the help that you needed or you spoke up and then you got shut down. And so perhaps that fear comes from a, well, I tried to do this before and maybe it didn't go very well. So it feels safer to sort of look after ourselves and protect ourselves and not do those things. Or perhaps you don't see other people doing it. When I think about making mistakes you know, and talking about mistakes, I've worked in lots of teams and organisations where I think I very rarely even heard the word mistake And so if people are not talking about mistakes and you don't, you know, the culturally, there's just not the environment where that's sort of part of how you understand the work that you do. It takes a lot of confidence and bravery to be the person saying, I have made a mistake and this is what I learned and I want to share it with you all so that we can all learn. And so this fear, you know, whether it is kind of a real fear or just fear of what could happen or what might happen, it's often described as interpersonal fear is massive it takes a lot to almost tip our brains and kind of balance our brains in that other direction to be fearless I often think about it's like it's sort of like this scale of going from being fearful to fearless and that doesn't happen overnight I think that happens in lots and lots of small increments and there are things that you can definitely do individually but I think today you know we are talking about high trust teams and so I think as we're going through the ideas for action for me this is most effective and useful where it's things that you do together so yes you can think about well how can you create more trust but I think this needs to be not the job of one person not the job of a manager or a leader or not job of the team and not the manager and leader I think this has got to be something where everyone agrees this is important and what are we going to do about it what does this look like for us
2: So we've got five practical ideas for action now that you can start individually. But as Sarah said, this is important that you do it collectively so that you can build that trust within the team. And the first one is all about understanding and exploring the difference between practical and emotional trust. So practical trust are things like, do people trust you to show up on time? Do people trust you to get work done do people trust you to meet the deadlines that have been set basically that point around reliability that we mentioned earlier in that trust equation whereas the emotional factors are more like do people feel respected by you do people feel like uh, you listen to them do people feel supported by you understood that you care about them and their career have they got a sense of bond and belonging with you those sort of factors And I think the point here is to understand your perception of what this might look like in the team right now. So I might be like, oh, I think I show up on time. I think I get work done. (laughs) I think people feel hurt (laughs) by me. But actually to openly explore that with other people. And I almost see this as like a bit of a pie chart where the ideal is 50-50. You kind of have a balance between the practical aspects of trust and the emotional aspects. And that you might draw your own pie chart with like, what do I think this looks like for me today? So I would imagine... I would imagine for me today that our team maybe feel that they've got some of that emotional trust of me I would hope that people feel like I hear them I, I hope but maybe they feel like they've got a bit less of that practical trust because I don't know maybe I overcommit or I take too much on or I'm not transparent about the deadlines I'm working to so I'd almost imagine that I'm a bit off balance at the moment emotional is higher than practical but that would give me a really good sort of way tangible way to talk to the team about if i was trying to get to balance what might i need to do differently so that you had equal levels of practical and emotional trust with me so it's a bit of a self-assessment but that could also start a team conversation about those two aspects what do you think sarah
1: so when you first shared this with me i found it quite confronting i think because my assumption had been oh we have really high levels of trust across our team amazing if you know We know this stuff. And if we don't practice what we preach, you know, there's a problem. But a bit like you, I think my default had been to understand trust from an emotional perspective. You know, do I feel like people can be themselves? Do I hope that we all listen to each other? All those things which are really important. And exactly as you said, I think we do those really well. I then put myself in the shoes of other people in our team and thought, what would their experience of me be in terms of getting work done at the point that they need it done or meeting their deadlines because, you know, we're all interdependent and we all kind of rely on each other to get things done. And I was thinking, I don't think it would be that great. You know, and I, I actually I was like, oh, that's so interesting because I could imagine I might be people would probably feel quite uncertain sometimes about whether I was going to do something or not. And, yeah, you know, for lots of and you can justify all of those things because there's lots of work on. But often people don't see lots of that. And do we then communicate when maybe we're not going to be able to do those things or does it sort of just happen? And so one of the things that you and I were talking about even before starting recording today was I think this idea of practical versus emotional trust gives you a way of talking about trust as a team because I think then I would, I might still not be able to get the work done so that still might be the reality. So someone else in our team might think, I need Sarah to do this work by this point now, I think what might happen is I would just think, well, that might be urgent for that person, but I've got something more urgent. And so I sort of balance all those priorities in my own mind, but without necessarily talking to anybody else about them. And so it makes you start to think about how important transparency is in terms of transparency of communication, transparency in terms of, you know, priorities, what's happening when, so that everybody kind of has that understanding of Well, if you're not going to meet a deadline, let someone know and let someone know why not. Because then I suspect actually then the trust doesn't diminish. I mean, if you never do anything ever, you've probably got a problem. But also, if you're never talking about these things, then probably your trust might go down a bit. But people might not really understand why not. So I think it's, yeah, it just gives you a different way of thinking about trust. Because I'd completely gone to the emotional side and I'd not even thought about some of those practical things. It kind of actually stopped me in my tracks a bit and thought oh, I could be diminishing our trust as a team with some of my actions and my behaviours at the moment. So I've got some work to do, basically.
0: <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
1: so idea for action two which Helen mentioned briefly already in the podcast is this idea of mistakes and you might be like me you might have been in lots of organizations where people don't really talk about mistakes and you don't have to use the word mistake so if that really doesn't work for you or just doesn't feel right in your culture it's just about where things don't go to plan. You know, where something is wrong, because everyone does make mistakes all of the time. And the very important point is the second thing. And what did I learn? And what did we learn? So there's more than just you, what did you learn from making that mistake? It's how can we then share that so that we increase our collective knowledge and understanding. So we're sort of growing together, not just individually. And as Helen described, I think if you hope this is going to happen, You're really relying on people having space in their days to talk about this and to share these. And initially, through the work that we do, we had tried having something called mistake meetings, where once a month you have a mistake meeting, everyone brings to that meeting one mistake they've made and what did they learn. And that feels very specific and purposeful, which is really good in terms of a meeting. But when we experimented with that, we found that also felt too formal. And often I think you can't remember. You can't really because you've often had to move on from those mistakes or you've already fixed them. And so for us, it didn't feel in the moment enough to actually really be as useful as we would like it to be. So we now do mistake moments. And the idea with mistake moments is that day, if you can, you just go onto Teams. We always do the header mistake moments. And it could just be two sentences. It could just be, today I made this mistake and here's what I learned and this is maybe what I would do differently next time. And I think we've only probably been doing it for about two or three months now, but I'm getting more and more used to it every time I make a mistake, just thinking, oh, that's a mistake moment. So it, I think it's starting to... In my mind, I've now got a way of interpreting what's happening and I've now got a bit of a default. It's becoming a bit more of a ritual and a habit to think, oh, when you make a mistake, not only do you need to fix the mistake. Oh, it's a mistake moment that I share with the team. So that has really worked for us.
2: I think it's quite a reframe, actually, because I previously would have gone, if I've made a mistake, my first thing probably would have been to get a bit annoyed at myself. Oh, I can't believe I've forgotten that. Oh, I can't believe I sent that email. Oh, I can't believe I missed that deadline. You know, that kind of thing. Mm. Whereas now I kind of go, oh, I do, I do go, that's annoying, Helen, (laughs) like that you've done it. But then I think, oh, okay, I should share this with the team because it'll stop other people making the mistake and also there's often a bit of empathy in there as well like when people reply to it there's a lot of understanding and empathy and now I have a a slight like a different default response to making a mistake than I did beforehand and I think it's much more positive now that we've got that place to share them.
1: Yeah it's funny isn't it mistakes stop being something where you beat yourself up and start being something where you learn and get support. And that is, that is actually quite a different experience. And I really wish I'd done this earlier in my career because I was definitely a somebody who made a mistake and I would squirrel away, try and fix it and not ask for help. Because I do think making mistakes is also very linked to one of the other behaviours in high trust teams, which is asking for help. And I think, again, when you get more used to talking about these things, now when I make a mistake, probably my first thought is... Like who might be able to help me or how do I share this in a way where we could fix it together rather than feeling like I have to hide it? You know, because of that point about if you're fearful, you hide your mistakes. If you're fearless, you talk about them and you ask for help.
2: So our third idea for action is called Red Table Talks. And this is actually borrowed from Jada Pinkett. So if you're going to borrow anything, take it from a Hollywood Hollywood superstar. But it's all about the idea of having a tough conversation, which is an important part of psychological safety, is that people feel OK to have those tough conversations, but a way of sort of creating a space to do it regularly as a team. So the idea of the Red Table is that it's a table. Actually, I think the way that she does it is she brings her daughter and her mother together and they talk about social and cultural topics that might be tough to decide discuss race and gender and violence and all kinds of different things. The point is that there's a regular space to have that conversation that people choose to be involved. So you don't force anyone to be part of a red table talk. Uh, But you might curate the topics. You might say, oh, what feels like a tough topic that we need to table for conversation? Make sure that you have a diverse group of people in the room because that's part of this is that you're inviting people with different experiences and perspectives. And if you're the person sort of who's maybe put that red table talk on, it's not all about your voice. You're really there to invite other people's opinions, to make sure that people feel included, to see if people have got different perspectives or experiences. And that doesn't necessarily have to be an actionable outcome. So it's not like, here are 10 ways that we are going to fix gender <laughs> diversity in the company tomorrow. It's not, it's not that. It's so that people feel heard and so that they know that there is a place for them to have a conversation that might be of concern to them but they didn't quite know how to have it because if you don't have that time and that space then people have these topics they want to talk about but they get frustrated they feel like they've not been heard they feel maybe that they're not don't have inclusion or belonging. And so it's just having the discussion, having the time to do it and maybe sort of borrowing that idea. I know MVF, this came into my mind because um, Andrew Patigo, who's the chief people officer for a company called MVF that we've referenced in our TED Talk, they have these red table talks and it's an organisation I really admire for how they drive inclusion, belonging and just discussion in the company. I think it's really powerful.
1: Yeah, I find that so interesting and almost in some ways for us, I think both of us, anti-intuitive because i would always think what's the action i could Mm. because because we are both very like that i like the idea of experimenting with something where there isn't the pressure to say this is about actions and outcomes and outputs which lots of things that we do are that way this is more about space and time to think and time to talk and that intentional idea of going we are going to take on the tricky topics Because if you take on those tricky topics that are probably going to feel uncomfortable, you generally also get more used to having uncomfortable conversations where you're expressing a point of view where you think, well, this might be different to someone else sitting opposite me or next to me or across from me on Zoom or whatever it might be. I think we should have a go with this. I think this would be really, really interesting. Would.
2: And I think you'd be in a conversation and we'd go, oh, this feels like a red table topic. You know, once yeah. you've got that brand, that that moment in the week, you'd be like, oh, let's put that, let's put that on the table. I feel like you could, you'd could you really start to use it as language in a team.
1: Mm, so interesting. And if anybody listening has a go at doing them, uh, let us know how you get on and we'll have a go too and, and let you know as well. So our fourth idea for action is about the difference between execution and experimentation. And I've used that word experiment a few times already today. And where I think this is particularly helpful is around the idea of risk. So in high trust teams, people understand what risk looks like, what risk means and what risks are okay and encouraged and also what risks are not okay so Helen sometimes says to me uh, you know will it sink the ship (laughs) Is sometimes (laughs) that's that's her often her question of sort of going how risky does this feel almost like how big a hole in the ship is this going to put because very rarely does something sink the ship but we have done some things at times where you're like oh yeah but it might water might start coming in to keep the kind of analogy going and when I work with teams on Doing workshops in this area on high trust teams, this is often the one that I think people find quite tricky because risk means very different things in different kind of sectors, in different industries, in different types of teams. And so I think back to this point about talking transparently, you've got to be very clear about when we say risk, like what do we mean? Again, you might choose to not use the word risk, but also really openly agreeing where your work sits on an execution to experimentation scale. Because I suspect that within all of our jobs, pretty much, there are some projects or tasks or things that we are working on that are, you know, maybe they're very, very close to kind of the experimentation sort of side of the scale, which then means that gives you, by labelling them in that way, it gives you more freedom, it gives you more probably a bit more autonomy, you can try stuff out, probably a bit less fear of failure. Whereas if we have agreed, if Helen and I have said this really feels like an execution project or task where you're trying to get as much right first time as you possibly can, that's okay too, because those those things do exist. But again, you probably behave in a different way. You support each other in a different way. And we have been doing this in Amazing If a lot more over the last 12 months. You might have heard us talk about this before, about being very clear about where we are experimenting. And I think you do. I don't know whether you agree, Helen, but you feel very different about those projects you sort of go well let's just you have more of a well let's just try it out let's see to
2: fail I always feel like when I said an experiment I kind of go well this might not work and that's sort of okay (laughs) because it's not about succeeding all the time it's about learning from it
1: yeah and you often I think then have a again a more open conversation about well what's the risks associated with that experiment so if this experiment fails and if something is an experiment one of the outcomes is it could fail. And that's absolutely okay. If this fails, does that feel okay? And you might not love it. No one likes failing. And that might not be what you're hoping for. But I think for everything that we do, where we're like, that's an experiment, I go, oh, if it fails, I might still be disappointed. But there'll always be something you can learn. And it is okay for that thing to fail. So I think as a team, if you're trying to encourage people to take more risks more initiative more autonomy they're things that i hear people describe a lot you know we want everyone to have more you know to take more control and feel like they've got the initiative to make things happen maybe just having these conversations about people's tasks to-do lists projects to be very clear about this and just see whether that changes behavior because certainly in our experience it's changed our behavior and it seems to work quite well in some of the organizations that we work alongside
2: And our final idea for action, number five, is all about asking curious questions. And this is a pretty simple idea for action, but it is very, very effective. If you want to have trust in teams, you need to invite conversation, invite different perspectives, invite discussion. And curious questions are the quickest way that you can do that. And so here are a few different curious questions that we would recommend you just start adding into your team meetings, the discussions that you're having. work in person they work virtually they're unlockers really for trust the first one what might we be missing or what have we not thought about the second one what other ideas could we consider and the third one who has a different perspective and they are purposely big and they are purposely open-ended because they are designed to invite discussion and when
1: you're asking these questions, try and avoid why questions. As we've talked about before, and Tasha Yorick's research shows this, why questions can come across as confrontational, whereas the purpose of these questions, remember, is to help people to be fearless rather than fearful. So why questions, and I know because I would be someone who would feel like this, if Helen just said to me, why are we doing this? Or why did you do that? I'd be like, oh, oh, no! And straight away, that fear part of my brain like lights up, and you know all those concerns and those worries and that interpersonal fear is at the forefront of your mind. Whereas actually, if we ask more what questions or where or how might we questions, that is much more about approaching people with kind of curiosity and genuine intrigue and then really listening to the answers. One of the things that I really like, I've reread Amy Edmondson's book, Fearless Organisations, recently. And I really like all the examples of the different questions and case studies that she talks about in there and how asking quite a subtly different question even though you're trying to get to the same outcome can have a really big impact I And mean, she gives lots of examples in different settings like hospitals and I just find that so interesting so I think again just trying out lots of different questions and see which ones seem to be the biggest unlockers for you and your team in terms of encouraging people to share risks or challenges or problems or different points of view and I think if you just start to notice that then you get more and more used to asking each other these kinds of questions
2: let's just summarize those five ideas for action for you so there was practical versus emotional trust and just assessing what that looks like for you making time for mistake moments having red table talks for those tough topics exploring execution to experimentation and what that looks like in your day-to-day basis as individually and as a team and then number five making sure that you ask curious questions
1: and so that's everything for our podcast for today. I did just want to let you know about one report that's coming, an event that we thought might be useful for at least some of our listeners. So some of you might be familiar with FutureLearn. They offer lots of different online courses, loads of skills that you can learn, and their mission is all about transforming access to education, which fits very, very well with our ambition to make careers better for everyone, which is why you know we're always happy to kind of talk about the work that they do. And they've got a new report that's released all about the future of learning i think it's the second one they've done on this and we'll link to that report in the show notes if you fancy having a read and if you're someone who's perhaps likes to hear reports being brought to life and sort of see them visually on wednesday the 30th of march they are doing kind of an event to talk through the different findings of the report it's free to join there's loads of really interesting experts and us (laughs) Um, i sort of didn't know i was like do i just talk about ourselves as one of those interesting aspects but we are there as part of it and people are talking about like key trends and skills and loads of different ideas on learning so we thought it was worth mentioning just in case it is relevant for anyone listening today
2: so hope you've enjoyed today's episode. All the links that we've mentioned will be in the description. And as I said earlier, you can just email us if you ever can't find the thing. It's Helen and Sarah at squigglycareers.com. We'll be back with you with another podcast very soon.
1: Thanks very much for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Bye.
0: Planning for your next trip?